1: Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. Welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show, a brief history of the Yankees versus the Giants and Dodgers and Mets. This is the Subway Series. Today, we are brought to you by betonline.ag. With no sports going on, you may think there's nothing to bet on, but you would be wrong. BetOnline has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Are you missing the NFL? No problem. BetOnline has live Daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, all open 24 hours a day and all online. Go to BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE and join today to receive your welcome bonus. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. This is part one of a two-part series. Usually these history episodes are brief. (laughs) Get it? They focus on a specific event or person or a narrower time period, but today's topic is definitely the largest in scope and why I'm breaking it up. Emailer Chris kind of suggested it. He said, my dad introduced me to baseball, primarily because he was obsessed with the Brooklyn Dodgers and his perceived injustice around their moving to L.A. What was the relationship between the Yankees and Dodgers during the time of the move, and how has it lasted as some, though I presume not all, local fans and their offspring may have had to defect to a rival? At first, I wasn't really sure how to attack that topic because it's such a broad question and there's so many books and documentaries and everything that's really talked about the glory days of New York baseball, really before 1957 New York baseball. But as I started to research, what I started to get intrigued by was the World Series between the three New York teams at the time, the Yankees, Giants, and Dodgers. They played each other a ridiculous 13 times between 1921 and 1956 in the World Series. 13 out of 36 seasons. That's 36% of the time. To me, that was amazing. So these two episodes are going to cover a lot of information. I obviously won't cover everything because I can't possibly deep dive on every season or else we'll be here forever. I'm going to talk about the notable moments and little things that I found interesting, but I think it'll give you a good idea of what happened throughout those years. The story I'm going to talk about starts in the early 1900s and at the start of the 20th century, The only two teams in New York were the Giants and Dodgers, and they were in the National League, which was the first professional baseball league. Then the Baltimore Orioles moved north in 1903, and they became the Highlanders because the American League wanted a presence in New York City. And before I go any further, I'm going to call the Dodgers the Dodgers, but they didn't officially take on that nickname until the 1930s. At any given time, they were called the Atlantics, the Bridegrooms, the Grooms, the Superbas, the Robins, the Trolley Dodgers. But for the sake of this episode and for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to stick with calling them the Dodgers. In the early years of the Yankees franchise, their bigger crosstown rival was definitely with the Giants. The two teams shared a field on multiple occasions. The Giants played at Hilltop Park when the Polo Grounds was undergoing renovations, and then the Yankees played at the Polo Grounds for many years until the Giants decided to evict them in the early 1920s. This caused the Yankees to build a stadium of their own. Yankee Stadium was set to open in 1923. So the Giants allowed them to stay at the polo grounds until then. And now another fun fact that I learned in doing this research is that it was originally going to be called Yankee Ballpark, but officially changed to Yankee Stadium before it opened in 1923. And it was also the first baseball field at that time to be called a stadium. And you know, it's a good thing because Yankee Ballpark just does not have the same punch that Yankee Stadium does. It was convenient timing for the Giants to kick the Yankees out of their park, because starting in 1921, the two teams faced each other in the World Series for the first of what would be three straight Yankees-Giants World Series matchups. The Giants defeated the Yankees five games to three in 1921. Yes, you heard me correctly. The World Series was best of nine from 1919 through 1921. You might remember from the first history episode that I did on MLB Shortened Seasons, that the 1918 and 19 seasons were shortened due to World War I, so perhaps adding games to the World Series was a way to recoup some lost revenue. I don't know, I'm just speculating on that. I could not confirm that. But it did change back after just three years. Why? First of all, fans had negative thoughts towards baseball in general because of the 1919 Black Sox scandal. But more importantly, attendance dropped by the end of the 1921 series. Commissioner at the time, Kenshaw Mountain Landis, was interested in shortening the series to make it more appealing to the public, but the National League president disagreed with this decision, saying the all-New York series was certain to be the exception. He went on to say, There's no denying that the New York series did get a bit tiresome. Possibly it was because all the games were played in one city. The fact that the attendance fell off about 10,000 for the eighth game made it seem that the public had more than had its fill. It's ironic that he thought the All-New York Series would be the exception because there was a repeat of that World Series the next two years and many over the next 35 years. The next year, the 22 Series was lopsided in the Giants' favor, but it did feature a Game 2 tie. Umpires called the game after the 10th inning due to darkness, even though various newspapers at the time stated there was between 34 and 43 minutes of good playing light still available. Fans threw bottles and seat cushions on the field in protest. And I actually looked this up. Sunset on October 5th, 1922 in New York was at 5.33 p.m. Even though the game went 10 innings, it took 2 hours and 40 minutes, which means it's safe to say that the start time was 3 p.m. Now, games routinely took 2 hours or less back then, but I still find it pretty risky that you're going to start a World Series game at 3 when it gets dark at 5.30. I mean, start the thing at 2 in the afternoon or 2.30 for God's sake. The next year, though, the Yankees finally broke through, defeating their former landlord in six games for their first ever championship. There was no World Series MVP awarded at the time, but if there had been, it probably would have gone to Babe Ruth, who hit 368 with three home runs, or it would have gone to Bullet Joe Bush, who, yes, has an awesome baseball nickname, but also allowed two runs in 16 and a third innings pitched. So does that make those World Series the first ever Subway Series? Yes, but not officially. It's probably obvious, but the reason they're called Subway Series is because by 1923, when there were three ballparks in New York, the subway became the most efficient form of public transportation to travel between them. You had the Polo Grounds in Upper Manhattan, Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, and Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. I'm sure you've seen that classic aerial shot of the Polo Grounds and Yankee Stadium, the black and white picture, where it looks so close. And yes, you could actually walk to it. It took about 20 minutes over the McComb's Dam Bridge. In those first two World Series between the Giants and Yankees, every game was played at the Polo Grounds because they shared a stadium. But the 23 Series was the first New York World Series played in separate stadiums. There's no evidence of the phrase Subway Series ever being used in those early 20s matchups. First two were nicknamed the Battle of Coogan's Bluff. Coogan's Bluff is a promontory, which is just a fancy word for a hill, I learned, at the site of the Polo Grounds. There's a picture I saw of fans standing on a hill watching a 1908 baseball game at the polo grounds. This was before the stands were expanded and the field was enclosed, but you could stand on the hill and see the action going on. The 1923 series was dubbed the All New York World Series by the media. Not the most clever of nicknames. Another note about the All New York series was that there was no off days because no travel was required, so oftentimes games would be played on consecutive days as long as the weather allowed for it. That definitely had an impact on pitching, I would imagine, although guys would pitch an ungodly amount of innings anyway, so maybe it didn't matter. But after the 1923 series, there would not be another one, not be another New York World Series for 12 years, and by that time, the phrase Subway Series was widely used. The first evidence of Subway Series being used to describe the World Series between the Yankees and one of the New York NL clubs was in 1927. The St. Louis Star published this on October 3rd. Had the Giants come through in the National, interest in the series would be great only in the East, where Subway series between the two Manhattan teams are convenient, if nothing else. The 1927 Murderer's Row Yankees won the American League by a wide margin, but the Giants lost a close NL race to Pittsburgh, who the Yankees ended up steamrolling in the World Series, Then, a year later, multiple papers published the phrase Subway Series in anticipation of another Yankees-Giants matchup, but again, it would not happen. Another nickname that multiple papers around the country printed was the Nickel World Series or the Five-Cent World Series because that was the subway fare from 1904 to 1948. The Evansville Press in Illinois wrote, Speculation over another Nickel World Series concerns not whether the Giants will be able to beat the Cardinals, but whether the Yankees will be able to stave off the Athletics. Found it interesting that the word another was used because perhaps they were referring to the 1921-23 Yankees-Giants matchups. Obviously, the Yankees never played either the Giants or Dodgers in the regular season back then, but when the two NL teams faced off in those regular season series, they were not referred to as Subway Series, so it specifically meant the World Series. A New York Times article from July 4th, 1934, talked about the All-Star Game at the Polo Grounds being a tease for a potential Subway Series that fall between the Yankees and Giants. Neither team ended up making the series, but in 1936, they would meet again. The Yankees even the lifetime score between their rivals, beating the Giants in the 1936 World Series. It was notable for a couple reasons. One, it was the first World Series the Yankees appeared in without Babe Ruth. Two, it was Joe DiMaggio's rookie season. And three, it was the start of four consecutive Yankees championships through the 1939 season, the first two coming against the Giants, which gave the Yankees a 3-2 lifetime series advantage to that point. In 1937, the Yankees played flawlessly, winning the championship in five games and becoming the first team in history to not commit an error in World Series play.
0: Yankee Stadium with 60,000 fans for the opening game of the 1937 World Series between the Yankees heavy-hitting champions of the American League and the New York Giants National League pennant winners Judge Landis baseball czar is on hand for the classic And here's a visitor from California former president Herbert Hoover A Ruth, without whom no World Series would be complete is right on deck as the starting pitchers Carl Hubble of the Giants on left and lefty Gomez of the Yankees shake hands in the 8th, Tony Lassieri, better veteran infielder, gets hold of one. It's a long one into left field. Manager McCarthy waves Tony on as the ball goes into the left field stands for the first home run of the series. And it's the 8th Yankee run as Tony circles the bases. A fitting climax to a brilliant Yankee victory in baseball's biggest show.
1: Man, I love those old-timey clips. Doesn't that just warm your heart? And that would be the last time the Giants and Yankees played in the Fall Classic until 1951. But finally in the 1940s, Dem Bums from Brooklyn started to show up. So honestly, I did not realize the Yankees and Giants had that much history in the World Series before the 1940s, because Yankees-Dodgers really takes over from here on out. And in the 40s and 50s, it has more notoriety because of their star power. In the years we just covered, the Yankees obviously had star power. But the early 20s Giants did not have many names you're going to recognize, unless you're really deep into that era of baseball history. The name you're probably going to recognize most is Casey Stengel, but he was like the Giants' 10th best player on those teams, and the only reason we know him is because he's a Hall of Fame manager for the Yankees. The 36-37 Giant squad had similar problems. Mel Ott was their most recognizable player. Meanwhile, the Yankees teams had Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Bill Dickey, Lefty Gomez, Red Ruffing, the list goes on. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a Yankees fan, but I look at the Dodgers' names and see names like Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella, Duke Snyder, and of course, Jackie Robinson. All of those names are immediately recognizable as baseball superstars from that era. The first time the Yankees and Dodgers played in the World Series was 1941. The Yankees were just a year removed from four straight titles, so they were the favorites. They had three 30-home run hitters, DiMaggio, Charlie Keller, and Tommy Henrik. No other team in baseball had two 30-home run hitters, never mind three. Meanwhile, the Dodgers were in their first World Series since 1920. The Yanks had a 2-1 series lead, but that was not due to their offense. Dodgers pitchers were holding their big bats down. Game four changed everything. The Dodgers were poised to tie the series when they took a one-run lead into the ninth. The Yankees were dead and buried. Henrik was up with nobody on base, down to his last strike. Dodger catcher Mickey Owen dropped a would-be third strike, allowing Henrik to reach base. What did the Yankees do? They answered with a four-run rally, stunning the Dodgers and their fans at Ebbets Field. Now the
2: top of the ninth. Casey with two down, pitches to Henrik with a count of three and two. Henrik swings, strike three, but the ball gets away from catcher Mickey Owen. Rolls toward the Dodger dugout and Henrik is safe at first. DiMaggio slashes a single to left. Henrik with a tying run, pulls up at second. Keller coming to bat. A tragic turn of fate for Casey when Keller rams a double off the right field screen. Henrik and DiMaggio score in Brooklyn a few moments ago, and joyous delirium now becomes enveloped in a pall of gloom, as the Yankee barrage overwhelms the Dodgers 7-4, to and New York's had a strangled hole in a series of three games
1: to one. The Yankees won that game, and they would win the series the next day. After game four, Owen said, Sure, it was my fault. The ball was a low curve that broke down. It hit the edge of my glove and glanced off, but I should have had him out anyway. But whoever said those Yanks were such great sluggers? They're the real bums in this series with that great reputation of theirs. So Owen was obviously a player in denial, but the Yankees were world champs nonetheless. And the 41 season was memorable for many reasons. Joe DiMaggio had his 56 game hitting streak and Ted Williams hit 406. Those are two of probably the most memorable things from that season. For Dodgers fans though, Owen was remembered as the goat who blew the World Series and it would be the first of many heartbreaks at the hands of the Yankees. The two teams did not meet again for six seasons. Unfortunately, World War II got in the way and really shook up the league from 1943 to 1945. The Dodgers went from a 104-win pre-war team to 81, and then 63 wins because so many of their players fought in the war. The Yankees were also a 100-plus win team, and they dropped to third place and fourth place during wartime. I mean, just take Joe DiMaggio as an example. In 1942, he was 27 years old. He missed the 43, 44, and 45 seasons, and then came back in his age 31 season. He was obviously still good when he came back, but he missed his prime. He missed his baseball prime years. And it wasn't just DiMaggio. Both teams were without their best players. The rivalry resumed in 1947, and it was the closest Subway Series to that point. It went seven games, and two Yankees you're probably not familiar with stood out in victory. Johnny Lindell hit 500 and drove in seven runs, and Speck Shea threw 15 and a third innings to a 2.35 ERA, and he was really the only pitcher in the series who did not get lit up by the Dodgers. But the series was historic because it was the first time a racially integrated team played. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947, and he and Dan Bankhead became the first African Americans to appear on baseball's biggest stage. Two years later, we had another rematch. The 49 series was not notable for any specific reason on the field. Although game one was the first baseball game televised to a mass audience, the Yankees' utter dominance continued as they beat the Dodgers in five games. While the series was pretty ordinary, the American League race that summer definitely was not. The Yankees won the pennant over the Red Sox on the last day of the season. Now, the book Summer of 49 documents the whole thing, But some of the highlights are the DiMaggio and Ted Williams rivalry, Joe D's younger brother, Dom, playing for the Red Sox. And I don't know, I didn't realize this really until I looked up his baseball reference page, but Dom DiMaggio was actually a much better player than a lot of people I think will realize. And Joe had to recover from an injury to help the Yankees win the pennant. Despite playing in only 76 games, he was their best player and their catalyst. Now I know that doesn't directly tie to the Subway Series and the New York baseball rivalries I've been talking about, But usually the Yankees would cruise to the pennant and just wait for either the Giants or the Dodgers to show up. But this year, 1949, they really had to fight to get there and earn it. So the Yankees were on an epic run. But 1949 started a streak of five straight World Series championships and was the first of 14 pennants in 16 years. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. From 1949 through 1964, the Yankees missed the World Series just two times. They also appeared in the World Series seven out of eight years from 1936 to 1943, and then again in 47. So World War II not only robbed us of Yankees-Dodgers matchups, but it also prevented the Yankees from owning the World Series for pretty much a 30-year period. It's unprecedented. It is amazing to this day that that happened. I get it. It's impossible to compare an era back then, the dominance in an era when there were fewer teams and no free agency, to dominating today. But no matter what, that is a ridiculous amount of success when you think about it from a 30-year period. So much changed in the world between the mid-1930s and the mid-1960s. But one thing remained constant, and that was the Yankees winning. James Earl Jones' speech in Field of Dreams should have been modified to say, the one constant through all these years is the Yankees.
0: The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. But
1: just taking a step back from the Yankees bubble that we all live in, New York was undoubtedly the center of the baseball world at this point. Starting in 47, seven of the next 10 World Series were Subway Series. I know there were higher odds of that happening because of the three teams, but the Big Apple was baseball's mecca. The era was epic, but 1951 was perhaps the pinnacle. The Yankees did their part in the American League as usual. The Giants and Dodgers finished tied, so they had to play a three-game playoff for the National League pennant which ended on Bobby Thompson's shot heard round the world. As we were reminded this offseason thanks to the Astros cheating scandal, The Giants had a spy in center field, stealing signs with a telescope, which were relayed to hitters, possibly helping Thompson hit that ninth inning go-ahead homer. But it's still one of the most famous in baseball history. That World Series, won by the Yankees, had some notable firsts and lasts. It was the last Subway Series the Giants would appear in. It was also the last for DiMaggio, who retired after the World Series. But it was the first for rookies Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. Mantle, unfortunately, shredded his knee in Game 2 when DiMaggio called him off for a fly ball. It was also the first World Series for Bob Shepard, who ended up announcing five more Subway Series at Yankee Stadium in his lifetime. Throughout the 50s, two of the best and most popular players in the city, and really in the entire sport, were Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. By the end of 1956, they would each earn an MVP award. Mantle smashed 173 homers and Mays 152 over those years. Now, one thing I did learn from doing this is that Willie Mays missed the 53 season because he was drafted into military service. That's why probably his home run total is a little bit lower than Mickey's. The two were billed as arch rivals, but never again met in the World Series as crosstown opponents. The next time they'd play each other for the championship was in 1962, but by that time the Giants were in San Francisco. By the end of their careers, they would each develop vastly different postseason reputations. Mantle is seen as a playoff legend. His 18 World Series home runs are a record. Meanwhile, Mays, who had far fewer postseason chances, hit just one home run, and that didn't come until 1971 when he was 40 years old. Perhaps their most famous rivalry came on the Home Run Derby TV show, which debuted in 1960. Mantle vs. Mays was the first episode.
0: From the wonderful world of sports, we bring you Home Run Derby. Where each week the leading home run hitters of the major leagues will compete in a home run hitting contest. You'll meet such stars as Duke Snyder, Eddie Matthews, Rocky Calavito, Mickey Mantle, Harmon Killebrew, Jim Lemon, Willie Mays, Jackie Jensen, and many others. Hi there, everybody. I'm Mark Scott saying, Welcome to Home Run Derby. This week, we have two of the greatest stars in all of baseball, that fence-busting switch hitter, Mickey Mantle, and the wondrous say-hey kid, Willie Mays. Let's meet them, shall we? Well, Mickey, come on in. Welcome to Home Run Derby. Thank you, Mark. How are you going to hit today? I'm going to hit right-handed today, Mark. Is that your best power? Well, most all of my real long home runs have been from the right-hand side of the plate. Well, that settles that. Willie, come on in. Welcome to Home Run Derby. Thank you, Mark. Willie, you, uh, you can only hit one way. You're right-handed. Uh, will it make any difference whether the pitcher is right-handed or left-handed? No, it doesn't, Mark. Uh, when I'm hitting good, I hit, I hit anybody. Right or left. Well, that just proves that they're great ball players.
1: As their reputations would indicate, Mickey Mantle ended up winning that Home Run Derby with a late-inning comeback, 9-8. to And that's where I'll leave this episode off, right smack in the middle of 1950s baseball. On next week's show, we'll talk about some epic World Series matchups between the Dodgers and Yankees with two of the most memorable World Series moments in baseball history, as well as both the Dodgers and Giants unfortunately leaving town for California and why they did that and what happened to New York baseball after that event happened. And of course, we'll talk about the Mets being established and the relationship that the Yankees have had with them over the years all the way up to the Subway Series in 2000 and today. So, until next week, thanks for listening.